Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a blessing and a privilege it is to stop and to pause and to reflect and to commemorate the death of your Son today during communion, the Lord's Supper, and to remember what he has done to purchase sinners such as us from the domain of darkness by faith. Thank you that this is a a life that is worth living, a life of hope and joy and celebration. And we look forward to the day when, Lord, we pass away from this earthly life to live with you forever. And it is all because of the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the fact that he is returning. What a joy to celebrate that, Father. Pray that today you would also help us to remember that part of living in this world is growing in the conformity to Christ through the very issues that we struggle with and that we go through in life. I pray that as we hear your word, that your word would be an encouragement to us as we hear even about a very important theme in our lives, the fact that we are on mission here on this earth for the sake of the gospel. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And our text for this morning is Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. I've titled this message, The Christian's Evangelistic Witness. The Christian's Evangelistic Witness. And the Word of God says this, Colossians 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Maybe you've heard of William Booth's um, piece of literature, very well known, A Vision of the Lost. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he wrote this great piece of literature called A Vision of the Lost. And I want to read an excerpt from this um, peace that he wrote. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled, while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of pure, of poor human beings, plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning, And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences and their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, 
I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, as they, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people who needed rescuing out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that through that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and even their own children. Now, this astonishing unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear the lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures was described. I have always said that the occupants of this platform were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed day and night in trading and business in order to make gain, storing up their savings in boxes, safes, and the like. Many spent their time in amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music, or in dressing themselves up in different styles and walking about to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already been rescued. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on, that, on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice and felt that they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him much were in full sympathy with him in the task he had undertaken, who worshipped him or who professed to do so, were so taken up with their trades and professions, their money-saving and pleasures, their families and circles, their religions and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being, large capital letters, who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they did not heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning, in the darkness. What a vivid picture of the state of the lost, right? And you get the point. The whole point is that there are many people perishing in this portrait that he writes about, this picture, and there are many who have been saved and rescued out of that, and, and yet only a few are concerned about those who are perishing. The whole point, beloved, is that this is the way that many Christians have become toward the lost. Some Christians, maybe some of us in here, may hear this account and may find it kind of unfair to portray believers this way. And you may think, oh, well, the minority of Christians are like that, but not the majority. And yet, if we truly paused and reflected on our lives, how long has it been since you personally witnessed to somebody about Christ? How long has it been since you reached out or were just friendly toward a non-Christian? How long has it been since you started or cultivated a relationship with someone in the world, a non-believer, for the purpose of sharing Christ with them at some point? 
How long has it been, beloved, since you have done a kind deed, performed a mercy act, an act of compassion toward an unbeliever in an effort to show them genuinely, authentically, something about Christ and something about the love of Christ? How long has it been since you even greeted with joy and exuberance a non-believer and just said hi or asked him what their name was? See, many of us have forgotten. Many of us have forgotten as those in the story about the fact that once we were perishing ourselves, that we were in a desperate situation and yet God stepped in and rescued us. We have become distracted we have become preoccupied with the worries of the world. And perhaps imperceptibly, we have become cold and indifferent and exclusivistic in our Christianity. Christianity is an exclusive religion in the sense that the only way to be saved is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only way by faith in Jesus Christ for somebody to be redeemed, for somebody to be saved? Yes. But as one man put it, our Christianity is dangerous when we as Christians lose our sense of privilege that shuts the door on outsiders rather than flinging wide the gates. Some of us have forgotten, beloved, that were it not for the grace of God and for someone at some point in your life sharing Christ with you, you and I would not be here. Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6, really is, is God's reminder to us by the Apostle Paul, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is God's reminder for us that we must be concerned as believers for the lost, that we must be committed to being soul winners as well. Paul has written a lot about the Christian life, hasn't he? He has written to remind us of Christ's supremacy in chapter 1. That Jesus is supreme over creation and over the church. And not only that, but because of the fact that he's supreme, he's preeminent, that he is sufficient, he's all that we need for salvation. He is the only one through whom we can be saved, through whom we can be reconciled to God. It only happens by faith in Jesus. So he's supreme and he's sufficient for our salvation. He's sufficient also for our personal holiness. That process of sanctification whereby you and I are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ must be centered on Jesus Christ and our identity in Jesus Christ and what he has already done on our behalf if we are to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. So he's sufficient for holiness. He's sufficient for church life. He is the head of the church. He guides and directs his church through his word. And so anything that happens in the church must be centered upon the, the, the head of the church and the guiding principles of his holy word. He's sufficient for church life. He's sufficient, as we saw in our series, for family life. You want to be a godly husband? You, got, you want to be a godly father? You want to be a godly wife, a godly uh, a mom? You want to be a person who works well in the workplace for the glory of God? You must center those relationships upon Jesus Christ, who is all-sufficient. He's all that you need. He's sufficient for our vocation. He's to be the one 
for whom we had to work in our workplace, in our business, with integrity of heart, not as men pleasers, but seeking to please Jesus Christ. He's sufficient, and even in the workplace, we must center our, our work ethic on Jesus Christ. So he's written much about the Christian life, beloved, and the need to focus on Jesus Christ. But Paul also wants to remind them, and us here, that Christ has also given us a responsibility, an obligation, a loving duty to reach the lost. And that is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Being a disciple maker at the very beginning point of sharing the message of Jesus with people who are lost and are helpless and hopeless is not being a super Christian or an evangelistic Christian. It is just being a Christian. We must be soul winners. Amen? So Paul reminds us here as he writes that it is our loving obligation, beloved, our loving duty as followers of Jesus to make disciples for Christ. Paul puts it this way of himself in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I have an obligation. As one who has been delivered from his sins, I am on a mission. And my mission is to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be preaching the gospel. See, far from a privatized, isolated, or separatistic way of life, beloved, we have been called to be concerned for people who are perishing as those in the story. As American Christians, or Christians living in America, the temptation for us is to be committed or or devoted to self-preservation, to be comfortable, to, to spurn anything that challenges us outside of our comfort zones. To, to adopt a, essentially an us-for-no-more mentality as individuals or as families or as a church. And yet passages like these remind us of the fact that we need to be living in such a way so that we reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ and that our lives matter, beloved, before the unbelieving world. Now, if you remember, Paul has already begun touching on the subject of evangelism. He has asked them to pray for him and for his companions in verses 3 and 4 that, that they would have open doors for the gospel. And in verse 4, even that he would be clear as he presents the gospel. So he's already touched upon this issue of evangelism. And now in verses 5 and 6, he expands upon our witness for Christ by addressing, listen, how we should interact with the lost in such a way, in such a way that we have a platform for sharing the gospel with people, in such a way that we may make the gospel attractive because people are wanting to hear in this, to see in this world, not just hear words that are empty, but but see the, the power behind words. Does the gospel make a difference in somebody's life? There is a watching world, beloved, looking to see if this gospel that we preach is authentic and is credible, you see. And the testimony of our lives tells a story, whether you like it or not. None of us are perfect. All of us are sinners. We're going to fail because we are sinners. The issue, beloved, is not perfection. 
The issue is progression and the direction of our lives. And so Paul is making the point here that how we live, what characterizes our lives as, as Christians matters. Not because of our personal, of our personal reputation, though that is at stake as well. But most importantly and essentially because the gospel is at stake. Because the name of Jesus is at stake. You see, your precious Lord and Savior, His name is at stake in, the way, in what you portray about Christianity via your life. And so in verses 5 and 6, He speaks to us here about lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism. About how we might live our lives in such a way that in the words of Jesus, people, the non-believing world, might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. If we are to to have a platform for sharing Christ with non-believers, beloved, if we are to, to make the gospel attractive, there is a life that we must cultivate. And I want us to look in these verses at, at two characteristics of, of lifestyle evangelism. Two characteristics of lifestyle evangelism that serve to, to attract and to provide a platform for sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And the first one that I want you to see is in verse 5. It is this. You and I must practice gospel-empowered conduct. Gospel-empowered conduct. It must be seen in our lives. That's his focus, our conduct in verse 5. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That word there, conduct, translates that, that metaphor that you know in Colossians and Ephesians, walk, which has to do with our, our behavior, our lifestyle, our, our conduct, the type of, of life that we live before other people that they can see. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom, and he says, toward outsiders, You ask, who are those outsiders? Well, part of what we've seen in Colossians and in Ephesians, we see it as well very strongly, is that those who are in union with Christ are said to be in Christ, in fellowship with Christ. If you're in Christ, you are a believer. You are in this intimate, indestructible, love-bond relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are an outside of Christ, what are you? A non-believer. I think that's what he's, he's referring to here. Outsiders, non-believers. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward non-believers, those who are outside of Christ, outside of the household of the faith, if you will, outside of the church, making the most of the opportunity. Now, what I want you to note here is, Paul could have just said, if he wants them to share the gospel, he could have just said, share the gospel. Share the gospel with wisdom toward outsiders. Tell people about Jesus. And I think sharing the message of the gospel is certainly something that he wants. He asked for prayer for it in verses 3 and 4. They should share the message of the gospel. But notice that what he focuses on instead here is on the, is on the message that we send by the way that we live. By our conduct. Have you not heard it said, actions speak louder than words? It's true. Our Actions speak or or tell a story. Have you not heard it said, your life is so loud, I can't hear what you are saying. What do they mean by that? That your life speaks very loudly about what are convictions to you. What you really believe is what you're willing to live out and pay the price for and pay the cost for. So Paul is talking here about how we live before the unbelieving world. 
Because more often than not, beloved, the world won't hear what you and I have to say if our lives don't authenticate or give credibility to the message. Now, what is our conduct before non-Christians to be characterized by? He tells us that it is to be with wisdom. We are to be characterized by wise conduct. What is wisdom? Wisdom is skilled living in Scripture. Wisdom in Scripture and in Hebrew thought was the idea of, ta- of, of knowledge rightly applied. Of taking what you know to be true and real and credible and applying it to life in such a way that glorifies Christ. That's wisdom. Paul has spoken of wisdom a lot in this book, hasn't he? If you turn back with me in, to chapter 1 and verse 9. I want you to see this. He prays that they would grow in wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Listen to this. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God's will in the realm of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what does that wisdom and understanding result in? Look at verse 10. So that you will walk or live or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is wise conduct worthy of the gospel look like? Look at at verse 11. It is when we are strengthened with all power. We are people of gratitude, according to verse 12, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Wisdom is a huge theme in this book. And in a sense, beloved, we might say that all that we have studied in the rest of the letter in the book of Colossians shows us what it means to live a life of wisdom worthy of the gospel. Think about it. In Colossians chapter 1, we we saw this this beautiful uh, vision of Jesus Christ, a reality of who he is and what he's done. Why? So that we might cherish and treasure Christ as the centerpiece of our lives. And that is wise Christian living. When you treasure Jesus above anything and everyone. In chapter 2 of Colossians, we learn that, that, that we must be rooted and built up in Christ. So if wisdom means anything in the book of Colossians, it means that we must be rooted and built up in Christ so that we reject all falsehood, all cheap counterfeits like legalism and mysticism and asceticism that takes us away from Jesus. Instead, we must live wisely and be centered on Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, if you look there, We saw in the first four verses that wise living means that we must fix our eyes on the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Our perspective must be a Christ-centered perspective. That is wise living worthy of the gospel. Wise living worthy of the gospel means that having been rescued from sin, according to chapter 3, it means that we we are putting off filthy old clothing called sin. And instead pursuing, putting on clean clothing, experientially speaking, the righteousness of Christ. Putting on holiness and Christ-like virtue is wise living worthy of the gospel. See, all we need to do is look at the context of this book to figure out what does it mean to walk with wisdom in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means all of the things that he's talked about. Wise living means being Christ-like in our interaction with one another we saw in chapter 3. That according to 3.14, we put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity in our interaction with one another. 
That according to 3.15, we, we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we're one body and we're grateful. And we're peacemakers. That we are allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly in verse 16. That we're doing everything in word or deed for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ according to verse 17. Wise living worthy of the gospel means that chapter 3 verse 18 all the way to the end of of, of chapter 3. The household code and roles and responsibilities that we saw. If wise living means anything beloved is living out those responsibilities within the Christian home so that we exalt Christ. Living out as husbands, loving our wives, shepherding our wives, wives submitting themselves unto their husbands and being helpers suitable before the Lord unto their husbands. Children being obedient to their parents as unto the Lord, working in the workplace as unto Christ rather than for man-pleasing purposes. That is wise living, worthy of the gospel. See, all we need to do is survey the letter, beloved. To see what gospel-empowered conduct looks like. And I want you to hear me now. It is this wise living worthy of the gospel that then becomes attractive to the watching world around us. Where they see Christians showing Christ in in all these areas of their lives. Where there is credibility and authenticity To the gospel that we preach, beloved. Because people see the transforming power of God in the way that we conduct ourselves. The gospel, in a sense, becomes visible to the watching world as people see our very lives. And beloved, you can give examples of how this works. So simple, isn't it? You know, recently, as we have over the years as a family, we went to a public place to have a meal together. Islands nearby here in Burbank. And we're sitting there after having ordered our food, all seven of us just waiting for our food. And I could see a, an older elderly couple as well as another gentleman with, with a few kids of his own. This elderly couple watching us almost to the point where for a whole hour that we were there, I've, I've, I was beginning to feel a little bit uh, uh, subconscious about the fact that they're watching our family, Right. So after an hour, we got our food, we ate our food. And as I'm walking out and my family's already out of the, of, of the restaurant, this little old lady comes up to me and she says, hey, I want you to, I want you to know that, that I was watching you guys. I kept thinking in my head, no kidding, right? No kidding. No. And she says, are you guys religious? And I said, you know what? We're actually born again Christians, my wife and I. She says, oh, I just want you to know that I've, we've been, my husband and I have been watching you guys, and, and we're not religious, but I want you to know that it's, it's very seldom that we see now a family that prays before a meal. You hardly see that happen anymore. And I said, yeah, I know that, you know, and our country's pushing that out even more and more. She says, it's very, it's very, it's very, um, she says, and the, the thing about it, you guys were having a discussion with each other. I said, yeah, we like to talk over a meal, you know, even as Chloe was throwing tantrums left and right, my little four-year-old, right? She was very gracious. But she says, well, it's not, un- it's not common for even a family to sit down like that together and actually have a discussion and for the parents to actually like to be around their kids. You know, beloved, listen, small opportunity, right? But I was able to share something about the gospel with that, with that lady and her husband who came over. Why? Just because we are living as we live within, in the context of the home. Nobody's perfect. We all have sin, Right? In some ways, um, she bypassed the sin of one of my kids sitting there throwing tantrums, right? 
But it was that testimony, that picture that she got of our family, that we were trying to, to, to say something to the world, not consciously, about the gospel and about the fact that God must be acknowledged in our lives. Oh, you can think of many examples like that, right? Or we can live in such a way to show Christ in different areas of our lives. Now notice he expands upon this wise conduct there in verse 5. He says, making the most of the opportunity. There's a, a further evidence of well, how this wise conduct fleshes itself out. That verb there, making the most of the opportunity, is a, is a compound verb from two words that put together, we might translate it this way, to buy or purchase for oneself. To redeem for oneself. You know what it carries the idea of? of of seizing or taking full advantage of an opportunity. He's not talking here about time in the sense of time by the calendar. There's a Greek word, chronos, that talks about time by the calendar. The word that he uses here for time is the Greek word kairos. And the Greek word kairos means an appointed time or season. Less chronological in focus. It it refers to time by its, its significance. By the opportunity that time brings, if you will. Moments that are key moments in life that we must seize upon is what he's getting at here. To live with wisdom means that we recognize that life is made up of crucial moments and uh, seasons, beloved, that are quickly fleeting. We won't have those seasons of life anymore. They'll be quickly passing, if you will. And so what do we do? We prayerfully and deliberately maximize the opportunity presented to us to make an impact in the life of someone. And that takes a kingdom-minded uh, mindedness, doesn't it? The, 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 the mindset that you and I live by, that, that there are lives at stake every moment or season of our life, beloved. And when we are not mindful of those lives that are at stake, then we forget to seize upon those moments and we don't take advantage of those moments. And God is always providing you and I with divine appointments, if you will, for impact upon an uh, an eternal soul, a human life that is going to live forever, either in hell, uh, separated from God, or in heaven, in the presence of God. And so we must be mindful of this reality that, that time is short, beloved. Time is quickly fleeting. And if you and I don't use it wisely, then we're never going to gain it back. What does James 4.14 say? We are but a a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Psalm 90 verse 11 says that in light of the brevity of life, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Oh, Lord, help us to live life with wisdom, applying our knowledge rightly in a way that glorifies you in our decision making and our priorities. That is what wisdom means. Rightly living life before you in light of the fact that time is quickly fleeting. A wise person understands this and lives each day wisely. The wife believer understands the brevity of life and and understands that there are lives at stake, beloved. And we take advantage of of, of, and seize upon those moments of opportunity in this case here and in this context toward the unbeliever. That there is a season in which we are here on this earth on a mission to reach people for Christ. Making disciples is both evangelistic and edificational, you understand. Evangelism is the beginning stage of making disciples where we share the message of Christ and and by His mercy, God can work in the heart of 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 a spiritually dead sinner and raise them from spiritual death and they begin now a life of of following Jesus Christ and we we need to be building into them edification. 
Well, there is this time where the Lord has given us a privilege and has blessed us with an opportunity to be a part of what He is doing, beloved. And the opportunities are, are abundant, beloved. Oh, I got to tell you, last Sunday I applied my message. I told you last Sunday to be praying, Lord, this week send me some divine appointments, some opportunities to reach people for Christ or to share the message of Christ with somebody. Make me aware, make me spiritually perceptive about those around me who need to hear about Jesus. I prayed that prayer and I prayed it before, but it was scary to see what happened this week. So I drop off my little girl for her art lessons this week. For an hour and a half, I have an hour and a half, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, never, never waste an hour. I mean, I have a lot to read. So I have a couple of books that I'm chomping at the bits to break into. I have my hour and a half mapped out. I even dropped off my little girl early so I can get to coffee bean early for this. I mean, I have an article to write. I have everything mapped out. 20 minutes into this, I mean, I'm like, oh, this is great, hour and a half, right? I hear a voice. Did you go to the Shepherds Conference? And in my head, I kid you not, okay, this is me humbling myself here. I thought, oh, no. (laughs) There was a guy standing there who looked at my laptop bag and saw the logo of Shepherd's Conference on the laptop bag and said, I was there too. I said, that is great. So we started talking for about 10 to 15 minutes. And the whole time, you could just see that the guy is just broken. There's something happening with him that, that I should ask about. Beloved, I didn't. I didn't. We ended the conversation after 10 or 15 minutes. He walked away. I said goodbye to him and everything. Good to meet you. And I sat there for the next 30, 40 minutes feeling guilty, trying to read G.I. Packer's Knowing God for crying out loud. And I couldn't do it because I'm thinking, man, there's a here. Here I am, so-called spiritual pastor trying to preaching Colossians chapter four about open doors for the gospel. And I even prayed for that. And I just missed an opportunity. Well, I felt guilty enough that I got up eventually and I went to look for him and I found him by the grace of God. And I went up to him and I asked him, I said, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Instantly breaks down and starts crying. And he shared a major burden that he and his family have right now. And I was able to pray for him and to even tell him that we can follow up if he's interested. Opportunity, beloved. Opportunity to share uh, something about Jesus with somebody opportunity to to talk to him about the fact that God is is concerned and cares about his family. We must be spiritually perceptive, right? And seize upon those moments, but we're so busy. Or at least we give the, the, the facade that we're busy. The question is, busy doing what? Impacting lives for the eternal things, internal realities? Or just being busy about peripheral matters, secondary matters in life? You know, my wife is such a huge example of this to me. I go to the, uh, the park the other day to, with my little Chloe, who has a lot of energy, so she's out there running around all over the place, and it's getting dark. But this lady shows up with three of her kids, and she's playing swords with her kids. And, and you know, my little Chloe uh, is having a, a breakdown because she's tired at this point, and I'm trying to minister to her. And this lady's watching me the whole time, and eventually she walks over to me, and she says, Hey, you're the preacher, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I am a preacher. Yeah. And I introduced myself. He says, your wife was here the other day. said, and she invited me to go to your, your uh, missions conference weekend. said, and she shared the message of Christ with me. 
She said, I wasn't able to go. My husband, we go to this other Catholic church in L.A., so we weren't able to, to go, and he's having a hard time kind of visiting your church. He said, she said, but I'm trying to get him to go to Easter service now because your wife reached out to me about going to Easter service as well. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, boy, you just never know, right? Here's this lady watching us who my wife had already interacted with. And if I would have acted, uh, conducted myself shamefully in any way, what testimony, beloved, would that have been with this unbelieving lady? Right? Both a humbling time as well as a time when God has reminded me over and over again. I mean, this week, my tire, I, I got a flat tire in my van. Typically, I'm like, oh, man, I'm so busy. I don't have time for tires. When am I going to have time to go replace this tire? I take my tire to some mechanic here in Burbank that somebody recommended. I got to share the gospel with that mechanic in five minutes that I'm there. Divine appointments, beloved, are ever before us. The question is, or the issue is, do you have spiritual sensitivity or perception to see it? Do you see it? Because they're ever before us if we recognize them. Various multi colored ways opportunities are abundant if we're kingdom-minded citizens listen it comes back to your view of the sovereignty of god doesn't it if you're in here this morning and you call yourself a calvinist and you don't share the message of the gospel then you're not a calvinist a good calvinist recognizes that while god elects people yes absolutely from before the foundation of the world the Bible calls us to an open call for people to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great preachers in the history of the church did it. Whitfield, Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, open call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus to repent and believe in the gospel. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we must be soul winners. And leave the results up to God and preach the gospel and let God call whom he calls. Don't say you believe in the sovereignty of God and you don't share the message of Jesus. Listen, don't think for a moment, beloved, that you are by chance in the life situations that you're in. Don't you dare think for a moment that it is fate. The reason why you're in certain contexts that you find yourself in is it's fate. It is God who is fully in control of every situation that you are in. And people are watching your actions and watching your conduct to see if what you believe is indeed something that flows, that, that fleshes itself out in your life. If what you say you believe is truly the conviction of your life, because it is, if it is the conviction, then you will put your resources and your time and you will even be willing to pay the price for the sake of the gospel. comes back to our belief in God and whether he truly is sovereign over our circumstances and every detail of our lives. So when are you going to share the message of Christ with that unbelieving family member that you have that you're afraid of? When are you going to show kindness and show Christ to that person? With the hope and the prayer that there would be an opportunity for them to see your love expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and ask about how they too may be saved. When will you seize upon that, that opportunity to share with that longtime friend that you've never, because of fear, have shared the gospel with that coworker 
When will you take that opportunity with that neighbor to finally go over and introduce yourself because they don't know you after 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years? Listen to me, beloved. If this text means anything, is that we must engage unbelievers, not become like them, not follow their lifestyle. Certainly not. We're called to be holy. But holiness doesn't mean exclusivistic and you never reach out to anybody for fear that they're going to infect you somehow with sin. Now notice, not only should our conduct or actions be Christ-like here, displaying Christ-likeness in our, the way that we live, but secondly, we must also be those who are showing forth visibly gospel-transformed speech. Gospel-transformed speech. Verse 6, look at what he says there. Let your speech always be with grace. Literally gracious. He says the word of you always in grace is what he says there. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Notice how the focus here moves from from what our lives portray to then what we say to non-believers as they watch our lives, as we as we have opportunities, what are we to how are we to speak and interact with them? By speech, certainly Paul means sharing the gospel, but I think this is broader here. He also means general conversation. How we speak or interact with non-believers. He says it's to be characterized by, by grace or graciousness is, is what this is here. Grace is, can refer to the divine grace of God by which we are saved, but also to human graciousness, to the believer's graciousness. So what does he mean here? He means speech that is gracious for us as believers as a result of experiencing the grace of God in our lives. Because we have, been, we have experienced the grace of God in our own lives. And because we're confronted in, in the word of God with a gracious word that, 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 that trains us as to how we ought to conduct ourselves before the unbelieving world. And speak to the unbelieving world. We conduct ourselves with graciousness. Including in our speech. On the negative side it means speech that is not foul. Or filthy. Speech that is not abusive or condescending towards the non-believer. Even if we have the truth, beloved, it doesn't mean that we're arrogant with it or proud or condescending or that we're vindictive toward the non-believers who, who wrong us because we have the truth. It doesn't condone us being unloving. We are to be speaking the truth in love, right? That is true for the, for the church as well as to others, to non-believers. Colossians 3.8 says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from, their, from your mouth. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt or, or spoiled or rotten speech proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Why is this so important, Beloved. Because this is not who you and I are anymore, right? You you and I are not the old person anymore. God has set us apart from sin for himself. And you and I are called to, to reflect our Heavenly Father as his children. If you are a child of God, you should look more and more like your Heavenly Father. So positively, our speech is patterned after Christ. 
Our Jesus, our precious Lord Jesus, who it says in 1 Peter 2.23 that while being reviled in the, in the times of suffering that he experienced, did not revile in return. Our precious Lord Jesus, who on the cross, instead of pronouncing judgment upon his murderers, do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them for they, not know, but they know not what they do. Oh, what a, what a great example of one who experienced uh, suffering and reviling from people, and yet he always extended grace to people instead of cursing and condemnation. And so believers are called to do the same, beloved, even to those who are our enemies, if you will, humanly speaking. Now, as we practice this Christ-like speech, there is an impact that we have with the world. And I want you to see this. He says, this is seen in what he says in verse 6, that our speech should be seasoned, he says, with salt. Interesting metaphor, this word salt there. Jesus used it in Matthew 5.13 when he said to his disciples, You, my disciples, my followers, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Think about it. What is salt used for? What do we use it for? Seasoning? Flavoring, right? Salt adds or contributes a pleasant and positive taste to food. This is what Jesus was telling to his disciples, to his followers, that that they are those who contribute in something pleasant to this world of wickedness and corruption. Season, seasoning, if you will. But also in New Testament times, due to the the, the lack of refrigeration, salt was used to to preserve food so that it wouldn't spoil or go bad. It was a a preservative. And so it is, beloved. And in the the same way, Christians living in a wicked world are, are a preservative, if you will, in this wicked and perverse generation. When we live with wisdom... According to God's word, doing the will of God in accordance with his word, we function as a preserving influence in this world, beloved. Somebody gave me the the testimony after first service a little while ago, how after the Lord saved him, now in his factory that he works in, all of the other guys who, I think it's a a wood shop where foul language is very common in in metal, metal or wood shops, as you know. Now, everybody, since he became a Christian, all of the men in there are very careful about their foul speech because they know there's a Christian, they're a Jesus freak, right? Well, guess what? He's a preserving influence in that, in that, in that context. Beautiful picture. But also in the Greek culture, there was an added idea here of, of salt as possessing, according to, the, to Greek thought, wit or cleverness. It carried the, the added meaning of, of having the ability to say the right thing to the right person at the right time. In the same way, Christians are the salt of the earth. We're called to use our speech in a, in a gracious, skilled manner with each non-believer that we, that we, uh, that we uh, come, come into contact with. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense, which is an argument or an explanation. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We are all apologists, beloved. Amen, Dana? 
We're all defenders of the faith in all contexts. This added idea of Greek thought of wit or cleverness, the ability to say the right thing to the right person at the right time that the Greeks contributed, makes sense in light of the goal that he mentions next in verse 6. He says, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I love this. We should always ask in everything that we do, including evangelism, what is the goal for what I am, why I'm doing this? And in lifestyle evangelism, the goal is that God, as you are interacting with that person, by his grace may grant you the ability to say the right thing at the right time to that person. Every situation is a divinely appointed time given by the Lord. Every situation is unique. Every person is unique, beloved. I love this. Commenting on this verse 6, one commentator writes this, Paul is not calling for a cookie-cutter approach to evangelism here. He is calling for real-time, spirit-born wisdom and grace to be applied in the specifics of each encounter with each person. The emphasis here is not on learning a method of gospel presentation, but upon personal dependence upon the Holy Spirit to produce in one's heart and mind the wisdom and grace essential to making the most effective use of each and every encounter with an unbeliever. It considers people as individuals, not as a category, unbelievers. It recognizes that we must listen carefully to each person God sovereignly puts before us. It also reminds us that each encounter demands fresh grace coming down from God, flowing through us and and onto the person that we encounter, end quote. Beautiful. See, what Paul is saying here to us is that our speech is to be prepared or made ready like a meal, if you will, in such a way that it is palatable and thus beneficial for the purposes of reaching the unbeliever. We're not talking about compromising the truth here. We're talking about speaking in such a way that is counter to the world system that they know that is corrupt speech and reviling speech and vindictive speech and condemnatory speech. Let the truth convict the the, the non-believer, beloved. So how is your speech with unbelievers who don't know Christ? Could it be said of you that Christ speaks through you in your ongoing interaction with non-believers in whatever context you find yourself in? Even as you converse with unbelievers about opinions about life, philosophy of life, politics, everything going on around, decisions of our government, even as you interact with non-believers around those key issues in our society, is your speech corrupt, spoiled, reviling our government, or is it tempered by God's word? So that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Does the way you speak build bridges for the gospel, beloved, or tear them down? Are you speaking in your ongoing interaction with non-believers in a way that contributes in a, in a constructive manner to the progress of the gospel rather than deter away from the gospel because you're foul and corrupt, no different than the world in the way that you talk? That's what we're talking about here. Our Christian witness is at stake, but all more important, Christ's name is at stake, beloved. The cause of the gospel and that should drive us to, to, to practice gospel-transformed conduct and gospel-transformed speech so that we may have those opportunities to, to share the gospel with people that don't know Christ. What does this all mean for us, beloved? 
On a basic level, listen, it means that we must be engaging unbelievers, not becoming like them, not joining them in corrupt behavior. We must be establishing relationships with unbelievers. And frankly, some of us are afraid of doing that. We hardly ever even talk to an unbeliever. We hardly even greet them. We hardly even meet them. We're so socially awkward around unbelievers because we're never around them. Listen, it's a learned habit, if you will. The more you spend time with non-believers, getting to know them and sharing the message of Jesus, you become more comfortable doing it. Amen? It happens. Others of us in our country live very sheltered lives, beloved. We very, live very protected and in a comfortable state. Others of us yet, unknowingly, are self-righteous. Listen, we act as if we are better than unbelievers. We act that way. We may never articulate it that way, but we certainly act like that. By the very fact that we refrain from any type of interaction with anybody who doesn't speak the way that you do, but needs to hear about how to speak in light of Christ and what he has done. We shy away from those opportunities because we're self-righteous, beloved. We're taken back by the, the smell with the stench of sin and spiritual death and unbelievers, right? And yet, we need to remember, the only reason why you and I smell better is because we have been washed by the blood of Christ. We're washed by the blood of the Lamb. The only reason why you and I smell different, beloved, and don't have the same old stinky clothing is because we are those who carry on us as believers a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So how many unbelievers do you know or interact with on a regular basis? Listen, it's not easy. And by the way, this is not radical Christianity. I'm so taken back by believers talking about these kinds of things as if this is radical Christianity. Whoa! This is basic to disciple making. Basic to being a follower of Jesus is you go out and witness for me, said Jesus. Look it up. Acts 1, Luke 24, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Look it up over and over. Look at the early church in the book of Acts. What were they doing? They were followers of Jesus and they were disciple-making disciples. They were preaching the gospel to others so that others would come to know Christ and then building them up in the faith so that they would become conformed to the image of Christ. That is Christian ministry. That is our mission here on this earth, beloved. As individuals and as a church, evangelism, edification to the exaltation of King Jesus who's coming back and will want to know what did you do as it pertains to my mission of making disciples? Did you do it or did you not? And he knows that on an everyday basis, doesn't he? In our personal lives. See, the norm should be that when we gather on Sunday mornings, beloved, and we worship the Lord and we sing songs and we hear preaching and we apply preaching, Lord willing, and we give to the Lord and we fellowship with one another, in addition to that, what we should be desirous of doing as well as being eager and zealous to share about the opportunities that God has provided for us to share Jesus with people. The relationships that we're cultivating with people for the sake of the gospel. 
We should be eager to praise God for those opportunities and to say, oh, brethren, pray for wisdom in this situation. Thank God for that work situation that I find myself in. I have these opportunities to share Christ with them in the midst of me suffering as I am. We should be eager to that, beloved, to do that. That is to be our culture, the air that we breathe Part of what we do when we, when we gather is talk about what happened when we scattered to get to know unbelievers for the sake of the gospel, you see, who we shared the message of Christ with. And listen, it won't be easy, right? Reaching out isn't easy. It never stops being a challenge. But nothing worth doing for God's glory. Listen to me. This goes for anything in life, but especially this of evangelism. Nothing worth doing for the sake of the glory of God will be easy. It will take you out of your comfort zone. And God is all about taking us out of our comfort zone, beloved. Especially in our country where biblical Christianity in many places is not being fleshed out because we're fearful of the the times that, that, that we live in. Or we're fearful of persecution. Oh, no. May we be fearless people who understand that God has put us in context individually and as families and as a corporate body, beloved, in this community for the sake of the progress of the gospel of his son, Jesus. Oh, may we grab hold of that vision, beloved. That is not anyone's vision. It's Jesus's vision. He said it. He commanded us to make disciples. More than anything, we must remember that our Lord Jesus left his throne above, didn't he? Isn't he the greatest soul winner, if you will? He loved sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost, beloved. He came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to a corrupt world full of people who weren't seeking him, that sinners may have life and may have it abundantly. Jesus came to do that. And if you're here this morning, please hear me. And you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know that it doesn't matter what you've done, how corrupt you've been or wicked in private or in public, how you lived your life to this point, there is forgiveness for you. There is forgiveness for your sins. None of us in here are here as believers, as professing Christians because of our own merits. None of us are here because of our own good works. We are here because of the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus who's coming back someday. And the only question that will matter is, what did you do with my son? We'll ask God the Father. Did you believe in him? Did you turn from your wickedness, you repent from your sin, of your sins, and trust in my son? Is he the, the foundation of your justification? That's the only question that you need to answer that will matter the most. What did you do with Jesus? The one who died on the cross to pay for the sins of sinners who will repent and believe in Christ. So we are most like our Savior, beloved. Most like our Savior when we extend a loving and compassionate hand to people who need to hear the message of the truth. Amen? The gospel, the good news. Good news for those who who need to be reconciled to God, who need hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. Why are we holding back the message? As those in the story, have we forgotten what it was like to to be in a state of condemnation? In a state of hopelessness? Fearing your physical death because you didn't know what was going to happen to your eternal soul? Oh, beloved, may God give us a, a heart for the lost. 
May God help us to be a mission-focused church. Amen? Evangelizing, edifying, building into, uh, into Christians for, so, that, so that they would become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And that begins with the new birth. And we must, in order for that to happen, we must preach Christ from a human perspective, share Christ in whatever context we find ourselves. Amen? Let me pray for us to close our time. Father, thank you for the reminder once again, Lord, that we are here on this earth on a mission. Help us, Lord, to have spiritual perception, to know that you have us in contexts, each of us, and our families, and even our church corporately, where we are located in such a, such a strategic place in the world, to be reaching people for Christ. Help us to have a heart for the lost. Help us to imitate those who had a heart for us, who shared the message of Jesus with us. And Father, use us, not because we deserve it, not because we have merited it, but use us because we want to see your Son exalted, that your Son would be exalted to the glory of your great name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.